When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. From Cleveland.com, Doug Maurice, Scott Pasco, Ellis Williams. We're breaking down the Browns. Numbers, film, fun, getting ready for the New York Giants on Sunday night. We did not get to you earlier this week because it was a Monday night game and, and everybody was up late and it's been, uh, I don't know, there's a lot going on, you know, there's a, there's a lot to cover with these Browns. So this is our once a week, just for this week, got to watch the tape. We appreciate you guys making it part of your Browns listening experience. This week, we're going to look a little back because we didn't get to look back on Tuesday. We're going to do that with Ellis Williams off the top on Baker Mayfield and how far he's come this season. And then we're going to look forward, as we often like to do on Friday, and we're going to focus on Jedrick Wills at left tackle. And Scott Patsko is going to dive into that in the second half because they are playing Andrew Thomas, the left tackle, who was the first tackle off the board in this draft. And the tackle that I believe I wrote before the draft and said, Andrew Thomas is the guy that the Browns must draft. And then he got picked before the Browns could take him and he stinks. So again, that's why you shouldn't listen to me. I'm just a facilitator. I'm just a facilitator. Don't listen to my opinions on this podcast, but listen to Ellis and Scott. So let's dive in on that. Ellis Williams, Baker Mayfield dive in. I got to watch the tape. All right, here we go. Y'all look, it's time to do another Baker Mayfield conversation we haven't visited Baker in a, in a deep dive way since after the Pittsburgh game when I, I remember saying it was a moment in his career that we just had to pause and survey where he was at. They had, they had both Baltimore and, of course, Pittsburgh later on their schedule in the Tennessee game, and Baker was in a shaky spot. Uh, you know, I, I remember pieces being written both locally and nationally, you know, is Baker the guy? Uh, there was a lot of question marks and we are such a, in such a reactionary business, but really the NFL is a week to week game and your decision-making changes with new information and on the results you see. And at that time, you got to remember Baker had just thrown that crushing interception to Mika Fitzpatrick that basically ended the Steelers game before it even started and just did not look the part of a stable franchise quarterback. But we said on this podcast, we said, Let's see how he does against Tennessee, against Baltimore, and then into week 17 in the playoffs. And now we're, we're, we're looming in that spot, and we have enough data to now go back and revisit Baker Mayfield. So consider this. From weeks one through eight, Baker had thrown 15 touchdowns and seven interceptions. Since the bye week up through now, 
He's gone eight touchdowns, nine total, and just one interception. His PFF grades are excellent among the stretch uh, on deep throws of 20 or more yards since the bye. He's got the number one passer rating in football at 142. His adjusted completion percentage is third, and his yardage is fourth, 362 on deep throws. Uh, his QBR data, QBRs had a, a, liked him all year, but he's taken another step up. Uh, he's over the stretch. He's only trailing Rodgers, Mahomes, Wilson, and Tom Brady. So that's what we're trying to figure out here today. What has changed? But again, back in October, I said Baker needed to do two very specific things in order to quote unquote level up. I've talked about leveling up on this show. I consider a player who levels up someone who performs beyond a certain expectation. We basically made Wyatt Teller the, the, the golden boy for this type of concept. Uh, when a player, you expect one thing and they just take that leap. They make that jump. That was Wyatt Teller in the first half of the year. And now it's starting to look like Baker Mayfield is, is hitting that spot. For Baker to level up, I said two things needed to happen. First, he needed to consistently play as a progression thrower. And a lot goes into that. It's about keeping your eyes up in the pocket. It's about having a solid pocket presence and poise. And then just processing information quickly. It, it, 0.5 second of one second, two second, that type of quick. I mean, these decisions are split second ones that the quarterback needs to make in order your offense to run smoothly. Over these past four games, and especially in Tennessee, and on Monday night, Baker, Baker accomplished those things. He leveled up Monday by keeping his feet active, his eyes up. He located mismatch. He extended plays, and he was throwing pinpoint passes. So before I dig deeper into Baker's performance on Monday night and discuss how he benefits from motion and his splits on man coverage versus zone coverage, I just want to get your guys' sense of this stuff real quickly. Where are you guys at in Baker? And keep in mind, he just threw – for back-to-back 300-yard games for the first time since his college career. Uh, these are major developments. And depending how you felt about Baker coming into Monday night, some of these may have been unforeseen developments. So simply, where are you guys at? Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to save mine. Well, I think we saw a below-average quarterback the first half of the season, and now we're seeing an above-average quarterback. And it was hard to tell how much he'd really – progressed over the first half through, uh, you know, the, the Raiders game. Well, it was technically the first half, but, you know, the Texans and the Eagles because of all the weather issues. But um, you're seeing, I think, more consistent play over the last two weeks. Although, you know, I got an email this week from someone who was really upset with Baker's PFF grade after the Baltimore game. Um, I'm just looking it up now. I think it was lower than you'd maybe expect. It was 70 yeah, and I think, I mean, that's that's still that's a good grade, but um, you know, he completed fifty nine percent of his passes, and if you take away the batted passes and the pick and the four throwaways, you're left with maybe twelve passes that I guess were deemed officially uncatchable. So I was trying to explain, you know, that that's kind of where that might come from. And I mean, did he have a really good game? I think. I think when you look at the Baltimore game, he made plays he had to make, just like he made plays he had to make against the Eagles when he didn't particularly have a great game overall. Um, I think maybe you're seeing more of those key plays being made now than maybe you saw early in the season. Early in the season, it was just already through, you know, he threw 20 times, if that, and he did what he had to do, and they ran all over everybody. Now, Baker seems to be taking a little more on his shoulders than maybe we saw earlier in the season. I think that's 
maybe the big difference, especially over the last few games. The only thing that I want to know in regards to Baker Mayfield is when is he going to get a new contract? Um, so everything you just said, Alice, and everything you just explained, Scott, is why I've been angry sometimes when I feel like that's all that people want to talk about. It's because, Alice, as you said off the top, it can be a week-to-week situation with these quarterbacks and trying to figure out everything like that week to week can drive you nuts. But I do think this is a, if not expected progression, because maybe if you had doubts, you didn't expect it. It is a reasonable, like, why is it happening? Well, it's because he and Kevin Stefanski are getting on the same page. And so I think this totally makes sense. And I think it's real. And I think you're going to dig into a lot of parts of this, and it doesn't mean he's not going to have a bad game. He's going to have a bad game again at some point. But I also think we got in a spot with Baker, fans, media. We all got in a spot with him when we were – last year was so weird, and it was his rookie year was really impressive in a lot of ways. Last year was such a step back. We were all looking for, like, more of a slide – and every mistake was magnified. And one of the things that I still want to write this week is I think, you know, we all cite that Minka Fitzpatrick interception and it was awful. Then again, another bad interception in that game. He's had actually a decent amount of, of situations in his career and other times this year where he's thrown a pick and he's come back from it. I mean, he threw a terrible pick to start the Cincinnati game and was practically perfect from then on out. He threw a terrible pick. You know, I mean, Stefanski tried to take the heat for it, but it was a bad pick in the Baltimore game, and they scored touchdowns on the next three possessions. You know, I think he threw a pick. The The, the Indianapolis game was such an up-and-down, one good half, one bad half. He had a pick in that game, but then they came back and, like, had a field goal on the next drive to put the game away. I think he had a pick in the first Cincinnati game, and they came back and scored on the next drive, when if he would have made another mistake, they really would have been in trouble. So I think that we're we're learning along with Baker. He's clearly gotten better. I also think we've gotten better at realizing that this is a progression. And I think in the end, we will look back and view this season as a whole and we'll have a pretty good sense of who he is. But it was bumpy along the way, but that's normal. It's normal bumpy. And so um, I love digging in on Baker because it's so interesting. But I think if you, I think if people were like panicked early in the year, I think it was misplaced panic because what has happened wasn't guaranteed to happen, guys. I mean, it wasn't a sure thing. But you thought, you know what, just give this guy a little time in this system and let it happen. Because, Ellis, I'm, I'm going to guess some of the things that you're going to explain to us. I think, to me, when Baker has happy feet or is inaccurate or is doing some of those things, a lot of that is, re- is a reflection of self-confidence and comfort with what is happening. And so when he's getting used to what Kevin Stefanski wants him to do, or last year, if he doesn't trust his tackles, if he doesn't have faith in what's happening and faith in himself, then I think he might lose all this stuff. And now that he's comfortable and has faith in his guys, I think you're going to explain how he's gotten better in a lot of ways. And I think you just had to wait for that faith to develop. Yeah. And there was no guarantee we were going to get here. And that's what I like about you laying out the mistakes Baker has made in some of those uh, head-scratching interceptions, it's his resilience, resiliency to bounce back. Quarterback's a lot like, you know, a, a jump shooter in basketball or a golfer. You, you, If you miss, 
and you miss badly, you got to move on. You can't think about the last shot. And Baker clearly is showing that he does not have that in his system. He does not dwell on what happened prior to project future performance. It's a testament to his mental toughness, but also in the way Kevin Sapansky both believes in his quarterback and protects him at the same time, letting him loose only when necessary. Think the Cincinnati game, the comeback, the Donovan Peoples Jones touchdown. There, it's I'm going to let my quarterback loose. It's a shootout. And we saw the same thing on Baker's last drive to Kareem Hunt. That's letting my quarterback play loose and get into a shootout. But what happens in between those final drive moments is the buildup of that Baker confidence. And that I really credit to Kevin Stefanski and the motion he protects Baker with. I'm going to get into what Baker's been doing with or without motion, uh, specifically on Monday night. Um, To get this data, I had to go back and watch every snap, every pass play and chart motion, not motion. So this is only for Monday night. Wish we had the software to go season long. We've talked about that before. That's data's hard to get. So this is good old pen and paper and a color coding system. I've got. Mark. You are the software that can go yeah. back the whole season and get it. Yeah. Slow moving, <laughs> slow processing computer here. Ellis Williams with four different colored uh, highlighters to code my notes here. But what make sure to- uh, make sure you expense those highlighters, Ellis. Yeah. <laughs> that looks like the, the four pack. That probably ran you at least like six ninety nine. So put that in. You know it. You know it. Amazon too, basic. So the, the, the average stuff. Um, before I get into this this motion, um, can I ask you guys how often do you think the Browns are using pre-snap motion on pass plays? Because I was a little mean to Freddie Kitchens last night on the Picks podcast. For I, I was in a little mood and I just kind of took it out on Freddie. I apologize for that, but I do remember last year at times charting and writing about the lack of motion the Browns were using. So just off the top of your head of Baker's 47 pass attempts, how many times do you think a Browns player was set in motion? I'll say half the time. Out of 47? I, I, say... I, tracked, I, I tracked 45, the, the two at end of the half plays I didn't track. I'll say 40. Doug's right. It's half. It's half on the pass attempts. Now, I didn't track the runs. That number would obviously go up on the runs because of the way Kevin Stefanski mirrors his run and pass game. It's not like they're only motioning on pass plays. But um, for the sake of, sake of tracking this data, I kept it with just the passes. But for it to be a half, that is where we're seeing Kevin Stefanski really protecting and grooming his quarterback and just setting him up to be in the best spot that he can be in. In the game on Monday night, with motion, Baker Mayfield went 16 of 23 for 219 yards and a touchdown. Without motion, that drops to just 9 of 22. Yards is still fine, 114 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. And you can look at the interception, the fire uh, blitz that Stefanski was talking about, no motion on that play, and it t- leads to the interception. So, Real quickly, I know listeners of this probably understand the benefits of motion, but just real quickly, the the reason you send a player in motion is to just simply give your quarterback information pre-snap. Let's say Kareem Hunt is lined up next to Baker Mayfield in the backfield, which the Browns do this often, and then send Kareem Hunt out wide to split him out as a wide receiver. If a linebacker usually a linebacker, maybe a safety. But if a linebacker goes out with Kareem Hunt, think of the wheel route he caught, that's man coverage because the linebacker moves from the box because Kareem was his man out wide to now cover Kareem 
on uh, isolated wide receiver situation. If when they motion and no one goes with them and the corner, the furthest corner just slides out and a linebacker bumps to the slot now because the number one receiver would become the number two and it's a corner matched up on cream hunt. Think of the fourth quarter cream hunt touchdown, 22 yarder on the check down. That's zone. And with that information, Baker Mayfield now can dictate where he wants to go with the football. So those numbers, and again, I wasn't surprised when I found that. That This is really what I would expect when you have such a detailed game plan and when you have more information at your disposal, you tend to perform better. So you guys, I do not want to take away from Baker Mayfield here because I wrote about it earlier this week. Just because you have the information doesn't mean you're going to decode it accurately and then act on it the way you should. Baker Mayfield still is the guy throwing the football, making those decisions, but we really got to credit Kevin Stefanski here, both for how heavily he leans on motion and how he's taught his players to move in unison with motion. None of this is easy. None of this is that simple as stuff. When we're talking pre-snap stuff from the receivers to the tight ends, to the running backs, they often know how the play is changing when the motion happens and where guys are supposed to be. And then Baker then is taking that information in, but for Kevin Stefanski to, put this in his playbook, install it in a shortened off season, teach his guys and have them buy into this and then have it execute the way it did Monday night. I mean, again, I know we give Kevin Stefanski a lot of props on this podcast, but the marriage now between Baker and Kevin Stefanski is so rooted in what they do pre-snap that it's really paying off huge dividends for Baker Mayfield in his third year. I thought it was interesting this week. I think we we all see that the marriage is, is so rooted. It felt like Kevin Stefanski this week was trying to not make sure he's not getting too much credit for that. That right? Or he was sort of saying like, "Oh, Baker's responsible for Baker's progress. It's not me. I'm not." You know that I thought that was this idea has certainly come around, and I think it's it's apparent to everybody. Scott, specifically on the motion though, is this what you would have expected, Scott, when Kevin Stefanski got here, that this would be such an important part of it? You know, I didn't think about motion that much. I think we all thought about bootlegs and, yeah. and play action, but uh, but it does make a lot of sense. And even like I, I thought it would be higher against Baltimore, considering how much they blitz, and maybe they wanted to identify that a little bit too and um, find out who's going to leave the box and who isn't. But um, yeah, I mean that seems to make sense. And and obviously having a better percentage makes a lot of sense when you have motion because you have so much more information and you know knowing that. Kareem has room to work on the outside is definitely going to help the Browns. And, you know, yeah, I think that's not much of a surprise. And I'm glad we had our, our software go through and, and figure that out. <laughs> the slow processing computer. Scott, I'm glad you mentioned that you thought it would be higher to decode the blitz. What I noticed, and I didn't track this and it's not in my notes, but it's worth mentioning uh, the same way that pre-snap motion gives him information. Baker has really become a master of the hard count now. And he was using that Monday night to see where the blitz was going and then making appropriate checks. So those two are just as related as anything else when it comes to Baker pre-snap. The Pittsburgh game, I wrote about how his cadence was awful and how the Steelers were teeing off on him because of it. And now look where we are. Again, a testament to Stefanski and Baker buying in. And again, is there the confidence issue? Maybe I make too much of it, but he just feels like such a confidence quarterback to me that when he has motion, when he can feels like pre-snap, I know what stuff is. Then once he gets the snap, his feet are better, which makes his accuracy better, that he is just a – that 
early info makes him a better mechanical quarterback. Completely. And it adds up. It's confidence over time. It's throw after throw, being on the money and being sharp. It, it's, it's two things. The Think of the fourth down and four conversion to Jarvis Landry near midfield. They use pre-snap motion. They got Landry outside. Uh, they Baker realizes it's zone. Uh, Peters drops and he just hits Jarvis on a one-step quick slant. The same can be said for his interception. Now, no pre-snap motion there, but because Baker is confident and firing because he thinks he has this defense figured out, because even without the pre-snap motion, once you figure a defense out, they're only going to run so much, so many things. You know what you're going to get for the most part. All right, this is zone. This is man. When they are in zone, I know what kind of zone it is. And when it's man, I know the guy I want to pick on. And the Browns clearly had a plan to pick on the Ravens backup corners once Jimmy Smith came out. But the interception is really a testament to his confidence. He let that thing fly because he was, he really was confident that he had uh, off coverage on the outside, which he did, but of course couldn't account for the dropping uh, backer there. Sort of kind of like the Calais Campbell for week one interception, just a, just a mystery. But Doug, you're hundred percent right. It's a confidence thing of gaining information and Intel and then firing upon it. I'm going to bring his name up at the end of the pod, but think of a guy like Carson Wentz, someone who just stands there and pats the football, pats it, pats it, pats it. You can give this season, you could give Carson Wentz all the pre-snap data you wanted. If you're not firing, you're sitting duck back there, you're taking sacks, you're running around clueless. And we saw some of that Baker early on in the season. That was not the Baker we saw Monday. So uh, let me ask this then, pushing it the other way, you know, Scott guessed maybe – 40 out of 45, you had pre-snap motion in that game. If it works so well, I mean, unless you're going up tempo or something, why don't, why not do it every play? Like why not have pre-snap motion every single time? If it's such a valuable way to gain info. Yeah. So I, two things on that. I actually, I'm going to plan on asking Kevin Spancy a little bit about some pre-snap stuff today. Cause I had that same thought, but then some logical explanations come into this play clock and getting and just getting the, the play in sometimes that is just they're not in order you know these things are snap to snap and things happen and the, the commun- line of communication has to be crystal clear uh pre-snap motion takes a lot of time you know it can it, it'll take eight nine seconds off a of play clock when executed well and then secondly it's exactly what you just said about tempo like for example um baker on the final drive of, well you know their last offensive drive went four for four for 75 yards and a touchdown all without pre-snap motion. Yeah. Now, yeah, you know, so that's Baker just being just firing and making plays and understanding that, look, we're not running it here. The Ravens know we're not running it. They're really only going to be in man coverage. And I know where I want to get the ball or in zone, I'm going to be able to hit Kareem on the outside and have him jog in for a 22 yarder. And just because they don't use pre-snap motion, like on that play, for example, doesn't mean you're not getting the information still. If they break the huddle and Kareem Hunt just goes out wide and there's a corner on him, that still tells you zone without using pre-snap, which is exactly what happened on that play. One of the things that now this is making me think about, you're talking about you've got to have the play in early enough to allow the motion to happen. Scott, wasn't that an overriding thing last year? of how often the Browns were getting down to two one zero on the play clock. I guess it would have made sense, Scott. They wouldn't have even had time to run this much motion the way they were operating last season. Yeah. Pace of play was an issue and they've, they've sped up. I 
I don't have it off the top of my head. I know Dan Lobby um, has been charting that every week and, and notes how the Browns are better at that. And that was something that Kevin Stefanski even said they wanted to focus on during the preseason or during uh, training camp, um, you know, getting to play in, getting out of the huddle and, and moving quickly to the line. And, and yeah, that was, that was an issue. And, and just even beyond that, I mean, you know, midway through the season, seeing guys lined up in the wrong spot or them having to call a timeout because not everybody was on the same page. You're, you're not getting that this year from the Browns at all. And I guess that's part of it too, Ellis, right? I mean, you've got a, if you have a tight end going here, receiver going here, and then you line up wrong and you cover up the tight end and this guy didn't set himself before you do open yourself up for some, a variety of different penalties. If you're doing all this motion, but you're not doing it well. It could be catastrophic. I mean, just the, the, uh, illegal formations, two men in motion. These are a lot of things that they need to get down and rep and become experts in. And that's exactly what we're seeing this Browns team do. So it's not just Kevin Stefanski and Baker Mayfield. Like I said, this is Stefanski, the position coaches, Alex Van Pelt, having everyone from the receivers to the tight ends to the backs, knowing when they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to get there and how quickly they need to be there and what it means for the play after the motion. I mean, there are so many moving parts in this offense before the ball even gets snapped. It is really a master class on how to build an offense, a complicated one that your players can master and still play fast compared to what the Browns. And then we bet Odell Beckham Jr. is faster than all you guys. That's the difference it, in the offenses. That, that pass, the touchdown pass, uh, people's Jones. I think there was, I think there was four, four different shifts in that, in that play alone. Yep. If I remember correctly, you had, uh, you know, he, he switched from one side to the other, and then you had tight ends going in and out of the backfield. So there was a lot of movement on that play right there. You're talking about the, the Tennessee score? The Tennessee game. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He used, he used, had a tight end in the backfield and motioned him to the, on the line, which brought the safety down. And then Harrison Bryant came off the line and then back into the, he basically flipped the formation, but did it with four different motions. So each time he would, react it's chess i don't know if anyone's watching the queen's gambit but it's exact it is chess before the play even starts and it's just really quality football and it's it's incredibly impressive from this offensive staff in regard to the queen's gambit how much is that miniseries sort of like a, a story of personal and emotional growth and how much is it just like that woman playing chess the whole time because i haven't started it yet is it just all chess playing or is there like more story behind it i have not watched it at all there, it, it, it's good story. It's good story. Okay. Once, once the football season calms down a little bit, I recommend everyone dive into it. My mother loved it. She's gotten me on it. My friends are all watching it. It's, it, it's a, a, a good, a good story. Only eight episodes, not too long, nothing like that. Okay. But I don't just want to watch somebody play chess the whole time. It's not chess the whole time. Chess <laughs> the whole time but with deep, with stories and flashbacks. You know, it's one of those flashback type stories. So you'll see a chess move and get a flashback. It, it's, oh, it's like that. It's like I move the pawn and here's how I move the pawn in my life. I get it. I get it's it. It's very deep, I'm sure. I like that kind of writing. Um, okay. So now you're talking about, Ellis, about motion giving Baker this info, man versus zone. So then how does he perform? man versus zone. Cause that to me was such an interesting thing going into that Baltimore game after he seemed to succeed so much against a kind of a lot of zone versus Tennessee the week before. Yep. This is the part of the conversation that I don't have a, I have the data. I can tell you exactly how Baker Mayfield performed zone versus man coverage. But what I don't have is the data on how Baker Mayfield would have performed 
had Jimmy Smith not got hurt and the Ravens needed to change their defensive game plan in the second half. It's an unfair caveat because you have to play the game. And if Baker didn't perform when the Ravens had a lesser corner out there, this would be a far different conversation. He got the job done. He picked apart a defense and found its weak links. And again, that is guys in the box recognizing it. It's Kevin Stancy having a game plan and it's Baker executing. Um, Let's just go with his numbers in the first half um, man versus zone in the first half. Even split, um, it was a he was three for six versus man for forty nine yards, and then versus zone four for six, thirty two yards, um, and that that really tells me that it was a mixed bag. The Ravens' game plan was, but it, those yardage totals tell you exactly what you need to know. The Browns weren't moving the ball effectively. They weren't popping those explosive plays. It was take some stuff underneath and hope we can make some plays, but it wasn't those chunk plays like we saw in the third quarter, Kareem Hunt, you know, 26 yards down the sideline or uh, Richard Higgins scoring on Peters in a, kind of a blown cover situation or the Donovan Peoples-Jones backyard, back shoulder throw. So now for the game, this, this paints more of a light on it. 10 for 21, 148 yards in the score. And then verse zone 16 for 24, 194 yards and a score plus his uh, rushing touchdown also came in that. So what that tells you is really what we knew about Baker coming in. It it confirmed what we knew when it's man coverage, when the windows are tighter, it's a little harder to operate versus zone because of gaining the information from pre-snap. You're almost, you're a sitting duck. You're really, that's what has become with this offense. If you're going to play zone against Baker Mayfield and then allow Kevin Stefanski to motion a player to decode that information and get it to his quarterback, you're, you're not going to have any, you're not going to have a good chance. I'm really curious to see a team like Pittsburgh and then into the playoffs, how they team start adjusting because I'm telling you, I wish I had data on the rest of the league and how they use pre-snap motion. I watched the Vikings a fair amount last year. I don't remember this much motion though. I could be wrong about that, but what I'm trying to say is the counter to this is after you see pre-snap, flipping from man to zone. I mean, defenses really need to start getting exotic against this Browns attack. And perhaps it's just too much for a defense to do. I mean, to do something you haven't asked or practiced all year is sounds problematic, but that's what playoff football is because the numbers speak of themselves. And we saw it in the first half, I think the first half versus the Colts. When the you, you give Baker May, Mayfield zone defense and the opportunity to process information pre-snap, you're going to, get diced and again that's what happened in the second half 16 for 24 almost 200 yards passing first zone and then those yardage totals at 148 yards versus man you got to remember about 60 of those came on the final drive itself when baker was just firing so this is baker again staying on brand and he's a zone shredder especially under kevin Stefanski. So, so tell me if I'm wrong on this. When I think about a defense trying to decide whether to play man versus zone against an offense, is to me the two best, the most effective things that a quarterback can do to beat man coverage is you have an explosive game-breaking receiver that if you try to cover him in man, he's going to smoke you. And that's what we've talked about. That's Odell Beckham. He's not on the field right now for the Browns. Or you're a quarterback who will kill a team with your feet 
And if you turn your back on him and play man the whole time and open up the middle of the field, he'll just scramble for 12 and 15 yards all the time. A guy like Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen or guys like that who might do that more. So the Browns don't have either of those things. They don't have the explosive burner at receiver and they don't have a quarterback who's going to kill you with his feet. So that to me is then we'll play a lot of man, play a lot of man against the Browns. But then the other part of the equation is what the defense is capable of. So then you're saying, Ellis, Baltimore played less man when they lost one of their important corners. And now it's like, all right, well, our guys aren't good enough to play man. So we can't do it. So then my question is that I always think about, it's not only about the Browns, it's about the opposition. I don't have a feel for how many teams really have the secondary to play a lot of man against anybody, like against a good quarterback. So Baker's a good quarterback with good receivers. I'd play man against him. But if you don't have good corners, then you can't. So, like, Scott, as you think about this process, I don't know. Do we think 16 out of the other 31 teams have good enough corners to play good man defense against the Browns? Is it 12? Is it only eight? Is it only four? That's the thing that I have trouble with because I thought with what the Browns have, play man. But it, to me, it also is easier said than done. I'm, I'm very bad at figuring it out. I think it isn't so much a question of who has the corners because I think the tight ends play a lot into this. And the fact that uh, the Browns use 13 personnel more than anybody. And so we've seen a lot of situations where you have three tight ends on the field and a couple of them are split out and, you know, guys who've gone into motion out wide and that's where you, you know, get those mismatches. It isn't, you know, then you're talking about linebackers or safeties and does the other team have the linebackers or safeties to, to cover these guys? Um, I think that's where the Browns have, have found success. Uh, the fact that they do have multiple tight ends who can get open and catch the ball. And like I said, they're using that. And last season, Baker, uh, he, the Browns used actually under Freddie Kitchens, the Browns used 13 personnel more than anybody and they had more success than anybody using it. And Kevin Stefanski clearly realized that and he's kept that up. Um, so, yeah, when you got – it isn't so much who the Browns have a receiver and, and how they match up. It's, it's those tight ends, I think. So then by the personnel and the formations, you put defenses in a bind that zone maybe becomes a better answer than trying to figure out. Because even sometimes right, they'll have 13 personnel and two of the tight ends will stay in and block and one of them will go out in a route or one will split out and then one will come across. Then if you are playing too much man with too many mismatches in that, you're going to wind up – with the guy trailing because they're going to beat your man defense. So then zone becomes a better answer against that formation and personnel idea. Okay. Right. Ellis, does that make, is that part of this too? That Stefanski's putting teams in a bind schematically where they're saying, all right, we got to play zone. Yeah. I think Scott's dead on about that. And, it, and it's a, it's just a, a variation of what Scott said. Not only is it uh, the the diversity of the Browns offense in multiple personnel and packages. It's the variance in his play calling you. These defenses do not know when it's run or when it's pass or when it's play action or when it's just drop back. For example, uh, the Browns uh, when they took the lead with eight minutes to play in the fourth quarter, that drive was a 12 play drive Baker threw one, two, three, four, five passes uh, they started the series with two throws and then went Kareem Hunt run for five, Kareem Hunt run for seven, Nick Chubb run for three. 
So you're, you know, Baker had a game where he threw the, his most pass attempts of his season, yet there's a touchdown drive in here where the Browns run it three straight times. That's just Kevin Stefanski varying his punches, hitting you with those body blows, the, you know, the runs, the six-yard run, the three-yard run, the two-yard run, and then here comes a Baker knockout, which I thought we saw a lot more in Tennessee, but it, it is, again, a testament to his discipline as a play caller, and he's making these really talented defensive coordinators – Mike Rabel, guys like that, not have a grasp on what he's doing. So combine his 50-50 run pass splits with his ability to run 13 purse, 21, 12, 11, and run and pass out of those, you can see, Doug, how it gets real confusing for defensive coordinators. Two last things. One thing I saw this on Twitter uh, by, from one of the film guys I like on Twitter last week, and it was sort of like a little chart of how to use your quarterback. And I think the chart was like, does your team have a quarterback? And if the answer was yes, then it was like, okay, is that quarterback a runner? Okay. Yes. Then run option. Is that quarterback a thrower? If yes, then let him cook. If you're, does your team have a quarterback? If the answer was no, then it was, do you have a good play caller? And if the answer was no, then it was RIP. You're dead. If you have a bad, <laughs> a bad quarterback and a bad play caller, you're dead. If you don't have a quarterback, but if it's yes, you have a good play caller, then it was play action them to death. And it hurt my heart a little bit. Cause I was like, Oh, that makes it sound like Baker's a bad quarterback, but it's like, I mean, as we said, he's not, Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers, he's not Lamar Jackson. And it was like, it's about figuring out what you have and just what you're talking about with motion, what you guys both have talked about with play action and bootlegs and stuff during the course of this year, man, it really is about maximizing the type of team you are. And you know what? All right. Odell Beckham's out. Well, then we're going to do this. Or you're missing this. We're going to do that. And it just feels like, I mean, both of you guys, I think, have made this point very well the course of the year. Kevin Stefanski is pretty darn good at maximizing this Browns offense. And they do have talented pieces, but he really is getting the most out of all of them. Yeah, and on top of getting the most out of them, it's just stability. It, it, off, from huddle to huddle, from series to series, those 11 guys, or the, you know, the 14 involved in the offense, depending on personnel, know what they're getting from their head coach, which then means they know what they're getting from their quarterback. And then that's a trickle down as to, we know what we need to do as a unit. And I understand that, that flow chart and it, I find it pretty entertaining, but the one thing about Baker that that chart doesn't take into account is arm talent plus confidence. Like Taysom Hill. Yeah. I just turned around and saw the breaking news that Drew Brees is starting uh, this week instead of Taysom Hill. Clearly Sean Payton seen enough, you know, Taysom Hill couldn't, do what Baker Mayfield's doing in this offense. And I understand one's a number one overall pick and one's a 30 year old, you know, gunner on kickoffs and whatnot. But the point is both of them are started games at quarterback this year. And one is playing far better than the other. And it's again, what happens when you provide stability to an offense rather than, you know, three different systems in three years, like Baker's had to deal with his entire career. All right, well, let's Scott wrap this up here. Just that, General Scott, this is another – I like this podcast because we get, like, specific examples of the bigger picture. You know, and this motion stuff is really interesting, specific example of the bigger picture. But 
Do, do you feel like we've that's where we are now, Scott, with with Kevin Stefanski having a good handle on how to bring the most out of the guys he has on this offense? Yeah, and I think it's important that, you know, it's the the whole is greater than the, the sum of the parts kind of thing uh, because you have a lot of players on this team, and Baker's one of them who uh, we knew or we realized early on in the season that they weren't going to have the kind of seasons that we've come to know them to have, you know? Baker wasn't going to be the the Baker we saw his rookie year necessarily. Odell wasn't going to have those numbers. You know, Kareem Hunt wasn't going to be that guy. It's Austin Hooper wasn't going to get the kind of catches he got in Atlanta. So everybody's kind of had to um, – figure out how they fit in this and Stefanski's got to make it work and make sure that he's, like you said, getting the most out of somebody without um, overdoing it in a way, you know, everybody's had to buy into that. And, you know, that's why they are where they are right now. All right. That's a good Baker Mayfield breakdown from Ellis Williams. Always enjoy that. We're going to come back after the break and do Jedrick Wills left tackle for the Browns next on got to watch the tape. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko. Before we start this, again, th- this was a very interesting left tackle draft class. We all knew that. Everybody thought the Browns were going to take a left tackle. It was the clear need. Uh, Tristan Wurst, Mekhi Becton, Jedrick Wills, Andrew Thomas. Just let's go on the record before we start this conversation. Ellis, who, who were you interested in before the draft in the Browns taking as the left tackle of their future? Doug, I must have missed the piece you wrote on why the Browns should draft Andrew Thomas because I also thought that. But if I would have read that first and saw where you ended, I would have thought differently. But no, I'm kidding. I was on is, with you. I thought it was safe logic. I love that your brand now is anti-Doug. <laughs> Just go. Every pick on the pick spot is Ellis versus Doug, and Ellis is undefeated. I, I felt like there were a lot of people that that wound up on the Andrew Thomas train. Scott, had did you have a strong left tackle opinion before the draft? Uh, first, I'm also anti-Doug. That's why I picked 40 uh, motion snaps before. <laughs> I thought this was like the price is right. I just wanted to be – I should have said half plus one just to, <laughs> just to go. You would have won. Half plus one, you would have won. That's right. Um, <laughs> man, I don't know if I really had – if I was leaning one way or another. I do remember talking to Joe Thomas before the draft about the, the tackles, and he had no issues with Wills moving over to the other side. He really liked Becton, but – he was of the belief that any of the, the top four guys who were, you know, considered the top four, the big four there, uh, were going to work out. So that, that, you know, that was good enough for me, but I didn't, I didn't really wasn't leaning anyway. I, I, I knew they were going to get a good one, you know, and when they got to the 10th pick and Thomas was the only one off the board, it was clear that, you know, they were going to get somebody who, who was probably going to work in this offense. So. And it is, I mean, they've all, other than Thomas, they've all been, pretty good to varying degrees so far. Right. So, I mean, like that's, that's right. pretty good. I, and is it that Andrew Thomas isn't as good as people expected or is it the Giants screwed him up somehow? Who knows? It all works together. So anyway, let's deal. Let's dig into this. Scott Patsko, you're up with Jedrick Wills. I got to watch the tape. All right. So Jedrick Wills, 10th overall pick second tackle off the board. Like we said, Andrew Thomas, uh, number four overall to the Jets. Makai Becton went 11th or I'm sorry to the Giants. Makai Becton went 11th to the Jets and then, uh, worse went to the to the Bucks uh, a couple picks later, um, but this seems like a good time to dive into Wills because, like we said, Thomas is this week. Becton's coming up in a week with the Jets. So uh, first, though, let's talk about Wills, and I want to start with talking about him as a pass blocker because when we think of left tackles, that's what we think of their main job as as a pass blocker. And 
Uh, Wills was considered elite uh, as a pass blocker coming out of Alabama, uh, where he started at right tackle. And I'm sure everybody remembers the offseason storyline. You know, could Wills transition from right to left side? Nobody talks about that anymore, which kind of tells you that uh, it has worked. And uh, he, you know, he has continued to perform at a high level. He graded at 80.8 per PFF as a pass blocker at Alabama. And he's at 79.6 through 13 games with the Browns. So he's, he stayed at that level as a pass blocker. He didn't have a single game grade below 70 until week 11 against the Eagles. And he's only had two games like that all season. One of which was Monday night against the Ravens when he graded at 63.1. He gave up three pressures in that game. Uh, Wills has given up 17 quarterback pressures overall, which tops among the Browns linemen. Uh, His forced sacks are also first. Jack Conklin is second uh, with 14 pressures. But measured against other NFL tackles who played at least 500 snaps, Wills is 15th in pass blocking grade. Again, we're talking about a rookie. Um, And he's 46th in total numbers of pressures allowed. So he's not anywhere near the top in that category. Uh, we've talked about ESPN's pass block win rate on this podcast before. Uh, Wills ranks ninth among all tackles in that metric. He's one spot behind Conklin, which, you know, last season, you weren't going to have that situation at your tackle spots. Uh, so it's been a, a solid start uh, for Wills, just pass blocking overall. Now, we know he replaced Greg, Will- or Greg Robinson. As for comparison's sake, Robinson graded at 68.8 and 68.2 as a pass blocker his last two seasons with the Browns. So there's a big jump there in grade from Robinson to Wills. Robinson also had 10 and 11 penalties his last two years with the Browns. And that's an area where Wills has kind of struggled to raise the bar this season. He's got 10 penalties through 13 games, but unlike Robinson, who was sat, uh, he, it was more of a holding penalty issue with, with Robinson. He had six, uh, six of his 10 penalties last season were holding penalties. Wills this year, it's more of an issue of false starts of his 10 penalties. Seven have been false starts. I'm sure. People remember the two, he had against uh, Washington earlier this season. The best pass rushers he's faced include uh, Bud Dupree, uh, Montez Sweat, Demarcus Lawrence, although he only saw him for like seven snaps when they played the Cowboys. He gave up to those three guys, or in those three games, he gave up a total of four pressures and one sack. Uh, so against his, I guess you would say, best best pass rushing competition, if you want to go by the number of pressures and, and PFF grade, that kind of thing. The one sack from that group was, was – uh, by uh, Montez Sweat, who beat Wills on an inside move in that game. And that's something that he's got caught on a couple times, well, multiple times this season. He really gets out into his set early. Um, and sometimes that kind of leaves him exposed for someone to kind of juke outside and go inside. Um, but getting around the outside of Wills is really tough. You're, you're Almost every game, you're going to see him run somebody into the ground who's trying to get to the outside. He's kind of absorbs their momentum and then just lets them – just let them go right into the turf. Um, but juking outside and coming inside is something that, that we've seen uh, him kind of have to deal with a little bit. And along with the, the sweat sack, I don't know if you should call it a sweat sack, <laughs> but it was by sweat and it was a sack. So whatever. Uh, we, <laughs> uh, we also saw that kind of thing on the first play against the Ravens on Monday. Wills got into a set really quick against uh, uh, McPhee. And then he was able to kind of juke outside, get inside and uh crushed Mayfield really hard as he threw uh, on that play. But the bottom line is that Will's pass blocking is that you can't point to any one game this season and say Will's had just a really bad game or, you know, it was just brutal. That's not what you got from Will's. You've gotten pretty solid performance across the board. I mean, you don't even notice him most of the times unless he gets a false start 
So, and if that, you know, that's your biggest worries as a rookie, I think, you know, he's off to a good start. The one stat that I don't know if PFF tracks this or not is number of times your rookie offensive lineman screwed up and got your quarterback killed, which I think is the stat that I worry about the most, especially with the rookie tackle. I mean, that alone to me, right? Or you see time sometimes when you see a backup lineman and it's like when a lineman by himself can ruin your offense because all of a sudden, like he just cannot do his job or he, he gets, you know, three penalties and two drives. Ellis, I think one of the best things that Scott sort of said is the idea of a lot of the time, you know, you don't spend that much time talking about Jedrick Wills because, okay, look, Wyatt Teller killed somebody, you know, pulling on a run or whatever, but Jedrick Wills is kind of just doing his thing, which for a rookie at tackle, man, I, I, I think that's about as much praise as you can give. I couldn't agree more. It's a lot like a, a corner who you don't hear a lot about because they just don't throw to his side of the field. So, you know, okay, fine. The interception numbers aren't there, but you're doing your job and you're doing it pretty dang well. And that's exactly what Jedrick's been doing. Uh, Scott, I really like what you pointed out about what causes Jedrick trouble. And it is that, you know, out and then break in type of uh, stunt that defensive ends are using. But I'll say this one thing that really benefits the Browns offensive line is how slippery Baker Mayfield's been in the pocket lately. Uh, When even on that, on that first play, when he breaks in like that, uh, Baker's able to avoid it and make a play out of it. And then think of, um, Tennessee game when they sent that safety blitz you know the safety had just a clear shot at his back and Baker somehow kept his feet and just threw it away you know that goes from a a negative play a sack for eight yards to just a throwaway so the combination of uh, Jedrick just doing his job well and then when you do get beat you're getting beat inside which exposes the edge which then allows Baker Mayfield to break out of a play and escape it's if you're going to get beat it's probably the one spot and you, you can't completely knock him for that because, hey, we're talking about a rookie here with no offseason training camp and whatnot, which I'm sure you're going to get into. And we talked about a, a lot of Baker's confidence in the first half, Scott. That, to me, I think is, again, it, it, Baker Mayfield must have pretty decent confidence in Jedrick Wills, right? He's not, you know, standing there in the shotgun looking at his left tackle thinking, like, ah, that rookie's going to screw me up, right? I mean, which is mm-hmm. there's the numbers, but there's the intrinsic the offense is able to function how it wants to function because the first year guy is competent. Yeah. And that was Baker, which was just out of control, running himself into trouble last year. And uh, it hasn't been that case this season. Um, one interesting thing about that Washington game, Sweat had five pressures and only one of, even though he lined up over, over wheels, every snap, only one of those, you know, went on one against wills and uh, two of them were because of, of Baker kind of running himself into trouble, but we haven't seen a lot of that. Um, it, and there were two other times where they just left him unblocked because the play was going the other way or whatever. And he kind of chased down a Baker and hit him as he threw, but, but uh, yeah, it's clear that he has, that he has confidence in, in both his tackles as opposed to last year when it just wasn't, it just seemed like every snap there goes Baker off to the right, you know, out of the pocket trying to figure out what to do and, and not get hit. Yeah. So what's he been like in the run game, Scott? Is he is he definitely better one side or the other, better as a pass blocker or a run blocker? Well, he's grading better as a pass blocker this season. Um, PFF, though, actually graded him higher as a run blocker coming out of Alabama. Uh, he was graded at 90.1, which is 10 points higher than his pass blocking grade. 
through his first three years there. He started out slow, though. He, he was only at 68.7 as a freshman, although he didn't play a ton. Um, he was 90.1 by the time he was a junior, which was sixth among all uh, FBS tackles in 2019. So uh, he came out with a good reputation for that. And uh, various draft analysts he would rave about his strength and athleticism. And the term Mahler was mentioned more than once uh, in the run game. But it just hasn't uh, been like that right off the bat here with the Browns. Um, it's really his grades have really lagged behind what he's done in the passing game. He's at 50.1 as a run blocker through 13 games. He has cleared a grade of 60 just three times this season. Uh, his worst worst stretch was right before the bye week, uh, where uh, they played the Cowboys, Colts, and Steelers. He was in the 40s in all three of those games, and he was in the 30s against the Raiders uh, in Week Eight. Since then, though. Um, He's been climbing Monday's game against the Ravens. Uh, he was only at 48.5 against the run, but uh, that was the first time since the bye that he'd been below 55. So he's overall been a little more consistent. Um, but this is where I should probably mention that the Browns are currently third in the NFL in rushing yards, you know, and they have two running backs who are, who are going to reach a thousand yards with one, definitely one still has a shot. So it's not like Wills is holding back this running game. Uh, and if you look at where the Browns have run the ball this season, they've had success running around left end and also behind Wills. Uh, the Browns average 6.7 yards per carry. That's on 55 attempts around left end. And then 5.1 per carry uh, in 27 carries behind left tackle specifically. Um, directional stats like that, uh, I'm never really sure. If you go to different websites, you're going to see some different numbers, uh, and it's not really clear on how – how they're actually defining directional, whether it's, you know, which player actually set the block or where they're actually running. But that's, um, I think, uh, I'm going with football outsiders uh, information on this. So that's what we're going with. So those are two good, two good averages. They still mostly run to the right behind Teller and Conklin at almost a two to one margin. Um, but that 6.7 average around left end is the highest of any direction for the Browns and 5.1 behind wills is better than Conklin. Who's at 4.1, uh, per carry. Uh, also, according to football outsiders, the Browns ranked seventh in left end yards in the league and second in left tackle yards. Again, it's a lower it's a lower number of snaps than and than some other teams might have, but uh, those rankings are good. Uh, they only actually run nine percent around left end and fourteen percent behind left tackle. They run most of the time, like most teams do, uh, behind their guards and their center. Again, for comparison's sake, Greg Robinson is a run blocker, sixty two point eight his last season. So it's a bit higher than Wills, but Robinson averaged 58.6 for his entire career. So the bar wasn't very high there. Uh, and I actually went back and looked at Joe Thomas and how he graded as a run blocker. Cause we all know he was elite pass blocker, uh, but I never really paid attention to his run blocking grades. He graded at 67.8 his final year with the Browns, but that was just one of three seasons in which he graded below 71. So yeah, he was a good run blocker. <laughs> uh, the, those other two years where he was below 71 were 2000, 2011 and, and 2012, when Pat Shermer was here running the West Coast offense. So I think we'll just blame Pat Shermer for those subpar years. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel right blaming Joe Thomas for that. No, blame, but, blame Pat Shermer. When in doubt, when in doubt, just blanket. Blame that's Pat Shermer. So, uh, so basically, to, to kind of sum up, it's, it, he started off slow for sure as a run blocker, but um, they are, they do have decent averages there at this point in the season and he has been getting better. And, you know, if his college career is any, any indication, give him time and, and he'll figure it out. 
And this is, I can't remember, we have talked on this podcast this season about their tendency to run right, right? Is that what it was that they just run right more than they run left? And like, this is why, Ellis, right? This, this is, again, a thing of like, okay, well, he's a rookie. And this other, you know, the right side is a, a big time right tackle free agent. And Wyatt Teller's been around a little bit that Kevin Stefanski adjusted to this. And then maybe, you know, over time, you even it out a little bit, but they're let maybe let Jedrick Wills ease into the run game to some degree. Yeah, baby steps. You, know, you said it, you know, let Jack Conklin, who ran the same exact system in Tennessee, uh, anchor the right side. You've got a guy who had a tremendous offseason and Wyatt Teller, and thus you run right. And when you see Jedrick, when they do run left, he's really good at um, setting his angles and creating a, a seam when, you know, Kareem Hunt can get uh, between, you know, guard and tackle and he can run right off. Uh, Jedrick's right hip there. He's good at, at, at setting and flipping in that sense. And then on the backside stuff, he's done a really nice job on cleaning up whatever may dirty up a cutback. So when you see Nick Chubb hit a huge cutback lane, it usually happens for two reasons. One, Baker Mayfield does a really good job at holding an extra defender on the backside so that that cutback's there. And then Jedrick is going down the line and sealing off anything that could come from play side and blow up the, the the cutback. So one of the big best plays in the Browns playbook, though they don't know when it hits, is the Nick Chubb cutback. And Jedrick plays a huge part in that, even when they do run right and the play is away from him. So Scott, like as you're analyzing this, Scott, like it's just, it's a nice trajectory, right? I mean, is this, I mean, of course it's, you know, Joe Thomas is Joe Thomas, but does it just feel like this is a guy as a rookie who's doing his job and is going to wind up doing his job at left tackle for the Browns for a very long time? Yeah. I mean, it sure seems that way. And there's room for improvement with technique and stuff like that. And like, you'll see him not finish out a lot of times. Uh, he might not play kind of through as far as he should, um, especially in the run game, you know, someone might spin out of his block. Uh, but he's kind of setting the edge there and then be involved in the tackle. Um when everything's, I think, like, you know, when everything is moving to the right away from him, he can have an issue trying to catch up and make sure he hits somebody. Um, but those are things that can be, that can be adjusted and, and, and worked on, you know, and improved on. But overall, I mean, he has like, he was the 10th pick overall pick and that's, there was a reason for that. And he has all the tools that you need to, to excel. It's just making sure that it's all happening the right way on every single play. It really is funny. This this 2020 draft for the Browns at left tackle was kind of like the 2018 draft at quarterback. It's like, all right, well, there's a bunch of good options, it seems like, and they're going to have a choice to make among some of these guys. And like, it's going to be quite a thing if they happen to pick the wrong guy. That's going to be a big issue. They pick Baker Mayfield out of all those quarterbacks. Andrew Thomas was the only left tackle off the board. They picked Jedrick Wills among all the rest. And so in the end, he's always going to be lumped with his draft class, I think, of these tackles, just like Baker's always going to be lumped with Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson. And so, again, we, we sort of touched on it off the top, Scott, but really how is he stacking up to all these other tackles that were drafted in 2020? Right. So I'm going to pull Tristan Wirfs out of this and kind of send him to the side because he has stayed on the right side. Um, but for the record, uh, he's graded at 79.9 as a pass blocker. 76.7 as a run blocker for the Bucks, So he's having a, uh, a good rookie season from that standpoint. But I really want to focus on Thomas and Becton because those are two guys who are on the left, uh, like Wills. Like we said, Thomas, uh, fourth overall pick. Uh, 
he grades at 52.1 as a pass blocker this season, 63 as a run blocker. Um, he's had, he, I know that you look at that and you think, wow, that was a horrible pick and he's played horribly. I wouldn't call him a bust. He's had a rough start to his career, but um, there have been some shining moments in there. And I think over the second half of the season, there has been some improvement, but overall, yeah, he's, he's trailing the other two clearly. He has 51 pressures this season, uh, eight sacks, three penalties. Those 51 pressures are tied for first among all linemen. You, you could even put quarterbacks in there who create their own pressure, and he's still he's still tied for first with Jacksonville's uh, Jawan Taylor. He's also, also got 51 pressures. The eight sacks are tied for second among offensive linemen, and it's tied for first among tackles. Uh, so... Yeah, there's a lot of bad going on <laughs> with the Giants. I mean, and, and ev- everything is a marriage of franchise and player. Right. But if that was happening, if that's what was happening at left tackle for the Browns this season, we'd be freaking out. Oh, that's true. That's true. And, I mean, again, you the Giants have a lot of issues. You know, you, you, lose, your, you lose your running back. You got issues at quarterback. And, and then you have, you know, a, a left tackle trying to figure out his first year in the NFL. So you put all this together and that's, you know, that's where you get the Giants. And you combine that with a really good defense and you get five wins somehow, but you know, but that's what, that's what Miles Garrett and Olivia Vernon are going to match up with this Sunday. I don't know how they're going to, uh, if they're going to put Garrett on him or, or let Vernon go, go at him because it seems like they, uh, they kind of like having those guys stick to one side or the other. Um, it hasn't been as even during a game, you know, but Miles Garrett against Andrew Thomas. That's a matchup that the Browns obviously like. So next week, uh, it's the Jets' Mackay Becton, who was taking one spot behind Wills. Uh, Becton has been in and out of the Jets' lineup. Uh, he's dealt with chest injury and uh, shoulder injury this season. He's only played 11 games. Uh, in two of those, he had fewer than 20 snaps. Uh, but he has graded well when he's been in there. He's 75.5 as a pass protector, 75.2 run blocking. Um, and I mean, really, aside from the two games where he was limited by injury and his snaps were, were really low, he, he earned grades in like the 20s and 30s in both those games. Uh, his pass back blocking has really been on par with Wills. Um, as a run blocker, he just crushes people. And I mean, if you remember the NFL combine earlier this year, he's just a mountain of a man, 6'7", 369, and moves like a guy who's not nearly as, as big as that. Uh, he's only given up 18 pressures, six sacks, and he's had five penalties this season. Um, he just, he just crushes people, uh, you know, whereas, I mean, I'm not an offensive line coach or I wouldn't even call myself an offensive line, uh, uh, analyst so much, but I'll just defer to the people who do that for a living. And, uh, what you hear about Wills compared to Beckton and Thomas is that Wills is the most refined of the group and that he isn't somebody who stands out. He just does his job. Whereas Beckton is going to give you a lot of wow plays during a game, he's going to crush people, um, but maybe not as refined as, as Wills. And then Thomas obviously is just having issues trying to, uh, to get his feet under him and balance and stuff like that. Uh, so again, you're not coming away from the season thinking that Wills uh, is having a really bad day the way Thomas has had this season. And like you said, if that was the case, Browns fans, I think would really be freaking out. Um, but that hasn't been the case. So I think the Browns have to be thrilled with the fact that they did decide on Wills and, didn't trade up for Thomas, you know, and didn't necessarily take Becton uh, or worse after that. Becton was such a 
a dynamic prospect. It just, he made me nervous just from the boom bust side of things that he's booming, but just, it's like, I mean, he is, he's, he's gigantic, but he's so athletic, but coming out of Louisville. And I just, I didn't, I didn't, it's like, well, it's like an Alabama guy who's just like going to do his thing. Just felt a little safer. Becton felt a little bit like Josh Allen to me. It's like just a, you know, he's a great sort of like a more of a raw player. And if it hits, but it's like, man, is that who the Browns, the Browns are trying to do something here. Like it's time to go. Can you, can you risk that? So, but it feels like Becton and, you know, again, that's who's coming for the Browns next week. I think Becton's the best player on that offense as a rookie. I mean, I don't even know what, what else do the Jets have on offense? So it's like, all right, the Jets can say, well, we've got a left tackle. It seems like, but I think for what the Browns needs were with the way things presented themselves, even if Becton, whatever, redefines the left pack tackle position, it felt like Will's in that comparison was the smart pick for the Browns. I liked the Browns going the way they did. Yeah, and you weren't alone in thinking Thomas was the top pick. I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, draft analysts they they put Thomas at the top of that that foursome. But I think Will's uh, his athleticism and his ability to fit into his own scheme made a lot of sense. You heard a lot with worse. From that respect, Becton is just, he just, you know, he's a freak of nature and he, he moves better than he should. And, uh, you know, he, he would have made a lot of sense too. But I think the fact that um, Wills is a little ahead of everybody else in his technique and um, athleticism, maybe uh, that, that kind of set him apart. And knowing what kind of offense they were going to have, you know, had a lot to do with it. So, Ellis, if it feels like the Browns have sort of hit on their left tackle, I mean, you know, who knows, but it's sure going pretty well right now. How would you define what that means to a franchise when you're when you're able to do that at that position, it seems like? It's a home run at first because of the importance of the position. Secondly, because of what the Browns need their identity to be. They have five studs across that offensive line, not a single weak link. You miss on that pick. You have a weak link now. Your team looks different. Again, the the investment of the pick, uh, number 10 in the draft, you really can't miss there. It can hurt a franchise unless you're the Patriots who miss a lot of first-round picks, but that's a different story. Um, it just provides security, stability, and results. And I'll say this about this draft class, Scott. I think you were dead accurate when you said – you didn't really come to a consensus on one guy because you just you could tell that they were all going to work out. And again, we can remove works from this because he's staying on the right side. But with those three guys, I think it's really important to keep in mind this. Becton being a freak of nature, that seems like it's working out, as you guys have just detailed. Wills is who he is right now. And Andrew Thomas seems to be struggling. Well, why is he struggling? I think it's important for Browns fans to remember this. Uh, during the Giants' bye week, which was about a month ago, so week uh, like 10-ish, they actually made a change on their offensive line. They fired their offensive line coach and brought in a longtime friend of Joe Judge's uh, from that they worked together in New England with. So I think around next year this time, we will have a better understanding of like, oh, is Andrew Thomas's bust and did they nail it with Wills? Or were all these guys going to be the refined product that we kind of all thought they were? Because it seems like, a lot more of this has to do with the coaching going on in New York across the offensive line than it does the player. And thus Browns fans can again, have a sigh of relief, a cheers, a celebration in the fact that Kevin Stefanski brought in Bill Callahan 
to coach up their number 10 pick and not a guy that the Browns had to replace on their bye week. Did the Giants fire their offensive line coach or did he just lose a steel cage match or whatever, whatever happened there with Joe Judge? <laughs> that was <laughs> like being thrown. That was so crazy. It was. It was like there was like some reports of like did Joe Judge and the offensive line coach get in some kind of fight. And I still follow I don't know why, but I still follow Kevin Zeitler's wife on Twitter. And I could just remember that day she was just like, I am logging off Twitter because it's like her her husband's boss maybe got in a fight with her husband's other boss. And she was like, I'm out. So um yeah, that's part of it too. But it is, this is the whole thing of the melding of coaching and talent. Again, it's like we're not struggling, but we're kind of new to that here with the Cleveland Browns in the last 20 years. This is what it's supposed to look like, that it's you give credit to Bill Callahan for helping Jedrick Wills come along, but you give credit to Jedrick Wills for being a talented player who is open to coaching and able to perform at a high level as a rookie. And it melds together, and it's not one or the other. It's both. And you can see examples of, okay, Andrew Thomas, probably pretty talented, coaching, an issue. And then there's somebody else out there. There's somebody who's a great coach somewhere, and he's having good guys, and they stink. It doesn't matter how good of a coach you are. So this is just working, and I just do think Joe Thomas was so wasted in that for a, for a decade, you the Browns did not have to worry about one of the two or three most important positions on the field, and they didn't do anything about it. But I just love the idea of the, you waste – when you are scrambling at positions – and you waste, you expend so much draft capital when you're, well, let's take a third round shot on this guy because maybe he'll be a, or let's try a, and when you just lock down a position, a really important position for six or seven years, it just allows you the freedom to take shots somewhere else. I can't even remember his name. Who was the guy? I mean, you think about it. Joe Thomas retires. They're going to play uh, Sean Coleman there. And then he's not the answer. Then they're going to move Joel Batone to left tackle, and that doesn't work. And they wind up with the undrafted free agent guy that they played for half a year. Who was that? I can't remember his name. The guy from Texas. Desmond. Uh, Desmond. Desmond Harrison? It's not Desmond, Desmond Harrison. Harrison. yes. Was it? Is that right? Yes. And Mary Kay wrote a big story about him. He's an answer for like five games. And then it's like, hey, Greg Robinson, he was the number two pick in the draft. We stumbled onto him. Maybe he's the answer. And it's like, no, and you're just grasping at straws and settling the position. Scott, oh, it's just a, it's just a load off, you know? I was half paying attention to what you were saying because I was trying to think, can Kevin Stefanski take Bill Callahan? Like, who would win that fight? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, there's, over, there's over cage fights in Berea, but that would be quite the uh, showdown. Huh? No, I, I, a cage, a cage match ranking of the Browns coaching staff by Scott Pasco. Who would win the Royal Rumble? We know what's his name, Bob Smiley. What's his name, Bob Wiley? Bob Man, Wiley. He would have been that guy's winning a lot of matches. He's not here anymore, but I don't know who'd be winning that stuff now. I, I think the D line coach Kiffin would have a good chance there. Yeah, I think he wins everything. <laughs> no, but you're right about the the path that got them there. I remember Joe Thomas showing up at camp and talking and working with Sean Coleman and. Uh, you know, everybody talked about how that, you know, he was going to gain all that knowledge from Joe Thomas and kind of step into that role. And that just never happened. And um, yeah, it, it's good to be, it's just like the quarterback. It's good to finally know that 
something is kind of taken care of, at least definitely for the short term. And they're not out, you know, actively seeking a, uh, uh, a replacement for the future. You know, that part's settled and, and now you move on. And I mean, really the offense as a whole, I mean, so many years spent with so many issues all over this offense. And now so many are, are, are answered. And, and really it's this off season is going to all be all about the defense. I, yeah, think. I, I think it's important to keep this in mind too, that this past draft, this Browns off season is a shiny example of when luck opportunity meet preparation. You know, there's been plenty of top 10 offensive linemen who have busted because the class just isn't that good. And then you, you still need the tackle. So you reach a little bit and you take someone. I mean, we just talked about Greg Robinson. Like this, these things happen very commonly in the NFL, but the Browns had the luck to have a all-time left tackle class where they probably could have took the fourth guy and this is still would have worked out. Plus the preparation and the foresight to bring in a guy like Bill Callahan. You were responsible with your coaching staff and who you gave such a young commodity to and now it's paying huge dividends for Cleveland as they're leading the league in rushing and Baker Mayfield looks as comfortable as he's ever been. All right. We dug in on Baker Mayfield. We dug in on Jedrick Wills. We'll come back after this with final quick thoughts as the Browns get ready for the New York Giants on Sunday. You're listening to Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape. Make sure you're reading Cleveland.com slash Browns. Man, just a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good writing, a lot of good insight, a lot of great stories, a lot of great news. Scott, what is your last thought here as we head into Sunday with the Browns at nine and four? Interested to find out just how good this Giants run defense is. They're only allowing 101 yards per game, which is seventh uh, in the league. Uh, of the teams the Browns have played, only the Steelers and the Colts uh, are better than that right now. Only, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, only six teams have gained more than 100 yards on the ground against the uh, against the Giants. And I believe Benny Snell Jr. in week one was the only player to run over, rush for over 100 yards uh, against the Giants. So um, the Browns got a couple guys trying to, to get to 1,000 this year. And this looks like a formidable opponent uh, three weeks from the, the finish line to, to try and keep up their averages. Ellis, what you got? First, Scott, I completely agree with that. It's really going to be interesting to see how Cleveland can run the ball in this defense and just how they attack this defense in general. Uh, the coaches have been saying all week that this is the most uh, confusing or disguised using defense that they'll see. And how does Baker adjust to that? What kind of pre-snap stuff does Kevin Fancy help uh, use to help Baker Mayfield out? What I'm going to be watching is it's something we follow each week, but this for where we're at in the calendar is extremely important. I'm just fascinated to see how Kevin Stancy calls this game in Tennessee. He proved that he can get out to a lead and, you know, though things got kind of close towards the end there, it, he proved he can be aggressive and not need the run and said pass to gain that lead. And then last week he proved he can come from behind regardless of the situation and call the necessary plays to get his team back into something. Now he's facing a situation where he probably doesn't need to get a big lead because you're not scared of a giants offense and they're probably not going to be behind because, again, you're not scared of a Giants offense. So how does Stefanski approach this game plan? What is his uh, MO? Is it more play-action stuff to just take the game out of Baker's hands so he doesn't uh, even have the opportunity to get confused by this Giants defense? Will there be an urgency there? Just the way he calls this game, because I said this on the Picks pod yesterday, 
though the Browns are in a really good spot right now, we all feel that way. The data would agree. We just spent, you know, an hour and a half talking about Baker Mayfield and their great left tackle. If they lose in New York, this is going to be a low spot in the season. Kevin's fancy hasn't had back-to-back losses as the Browns head coach yet. This is a spot that it could happen in. I don't expect it to, but we might be having a very different conversation earlier in the week if this game goes in a different direction than I'm forecasting. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. It's like they're fine. They're in great shape. The Raiders' loss on Thursday night helped the Browns' playoff chances and that kind of thing. But they lose to the Giants. It gets a little hairy real quick. You know, it doesn't mean they're out of it, but all of a sudden you're going to end up in a spot where, man, they, they might need to win that week 17 matchup against Pittsburgh to get in. So this is a huge game for them. I think there's every reason to have confidence going in, but it's just a reminder of in the NFL, when you're good and if you're not the chiefs, right? I mean, if you're just normal, good, you're one week away from being in trouble, even when you're this good. And it's just a really interesting it's a really interesting AFC playoff race. I think it's a reminder. Mary Kay talked about this on one of the earlier pods this week. It's so interesting with Freddie Kitchens calling the plays for the Giants. I mean, for real, that that's really happening. But that I do think in the end, I think Freddie really might be a pretty decent play caller. He was for half a season. Where Freddie fell short was trying to be everything at once, was trying to be a head coach and run an offense, and that was too much. Kevin Stefanski has done a remarkable job of doing both. But I'm curious to see. I think Freddie might have a little something. Now, you know, if Colt McCoy or, a, or a, an injured Daniel Jones is your quarterback and you don't have Saquon Barkley and, you know, your left, t- your left tackle stinks, it doesn't mean he's going to conjure up a win. But I think it's a reminder of how well Kevin Stefanski is handling both at the same time. And as Mary Kay has made the point, both Freddie and Kevin Stefanski had a little taste of calling plays for a portion of a year, but then Stefanski got a, then the year in Minnesota when he wasn't hired by the Browns the first time around to really get a better handle on an offense. Freddie kind of got thrown in. I, I, I'm wondering, I mean, this is almost a little shot for Freddie. If Freddie calls a good game, maybe somebody will give him a chance to be an offensive play caller again down the line. Not that Browns fans are worried about Freddie Kitchen's career. I'm just saying it's, a, it's weird how this worked out, and I'm curious about this. And, and it reminds me again in the end, and I've just been thinking about this, and maybe this is a topic for down the line. It's just so important. I, as, as hesitant as I was maybe about should Kevin Stefanski call the plays, kind of because of the Freddie Kitchen stuff. Man, it's a lot for a rookie coach, right, to do both. It's worked out tremendously. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine if he wasn't? When you have a head coach who's not your play caller, this is what I'm thinking about. Brian Flores is doing a great job in Miami. He would have been a great hire for the Browns. When they hired Freddie, he interviewed for that. They didn't hire him, but it's just dangerous to me. If you really have a quarterback that you're trying to work things around when your head coach is not involved in your play calling and then your coordinator leaves. And it just makes me nervous of like long-term stuff. If you're changing systems or it's like what we're seeing with Philadelphia, Doug Peterson is an offensive guy, but it's like, Oh, Frank Reich, the offensive coordinator, he's the guy that unlocked Carson Wentz. And now that Frank Reich's gone, they're dead, right? Let, that's not going to happen with the Browns because it's the head coach who's doing the unlocking and Kevin Stefanski's never going to leave. Just like, well, I mean, what are they going to, I mean, is he going to, I mean, what if the, you know, if the, are the Patriots going to hire him away? It's like, I don't know. Do you, unless he gets fired, it's not like he's going to go for a promotion somewhere, right? Right. That if you're leaning on your offensive coordinator and he's so good that he leaves and that that torpedoes you, 
that would be a fear for me if I had a defensive head coach or I had an offensive head coach who was leaning on somebody else. In Kansas City, Eric Bieniemy is going to get a job this cycle. He has to. He's overdue for a head coaching job. And he's done a great job as the offensive coordinator in Kansas City. But nobody thinks that the Chiefs are going to be torpedoed because it's still about Andy Reid overseeing it all whether he's calling the play sheet or not. Sean McVay is still overseeing it all with the Rams. And that's what Kevin Stefanski long-term is going to be with the Browns. We just have enough circumstances. It just, when your play caller is your head coach or when your offensive creator is your head coach, we just see too many examples of an assistant leaves and your offense falls apart. And this is reminding, this is a reminder for me this week that that's not a fear that Browns fans ever need to have. Yeah, Doug, it's a great point. That's actually what is probably going to happen in Carolina with the Panthers very soon. Joe Brady, 31-year-old offensive coordinator, uh, you know, next prodigy, has that offense looking nice. And their Matt Rule is building something there as a head coach. But all of a sudden, if you lose your offensive coordinator and your play caller, what are you? You're right. The Browns don't have to worry about that and won't have to worry about it anytime soon. And we saw it. Joe, Joe Brady was the brains behind LSU's national championship last year, and he left, and they stink. So, yeah, I mean, we see examples of it. Scott, go ahead. One note about Freddie Kitchens. What he can do well is run someone else's offense. What he, what he struggled at was creating his own offense. So him calling plays, I'm not trying to scare Browns fans or anything, but, um, you know, him calling plays, I think, is a good scenario for him when the offense has already been created. So Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I want to get this off my chest, too. It's a, just such a bummer that Odell Beckham Jr. won't be available for this game. How fun would that have been in New York City Sunday night? a little revenge game. NBC still flexed this game without Odell, so clearly they're doing all right. But if the Freddy revenge game is all we get, it's still going to be a great Sunday night game. It's the Jabal Sheard revenge game, right? Or Colt McCoy. I mean, really, of all the people who want revenge right now, you know, it's Colt McCoy. Get Butch Davis or, you know, who are are not Butch Davis, but uh, uh, shoot, now I can't remember his name. Pat Pat Shermer. We're just blaming Pat Shermer for everything. Is that what we said? Cole McCoy got yelled at a lot when he was here. I'm sure he would love to to get back at the Browns. Real Peppers. That's there's another one. We're, I mean Olivier Vernon, Kevin Zeitler. I mean there's a lot. There is a lot of crossover here. There's some really good players. I mean like again, we were maybe going to go into the trade. I mean Jarrell Peppers is having a really good year for the Giants. Kevin Zeitler is a really good player for the Giants. But I think as Scott, I mean you guys covered on a previous podcast. It's like okay, well the Browns don't have to worry about not having Kevin Zeitler because they have Wyatt Teller. Right. So, and, and, you know, it's just like, you know, if they didn't have Wyatt Teller, we were really worried about not having Kevin Zeitler when they were trying to put Austin Corbett in there. I just want to get an Austin Corbett shot in there before I got out of here. All right. That went long. There's a lot going on. It was our only one this week. We'll be back next Tuesday after this game to give you another got to watch the tape. Thanks so much for making it part of your Browns experience for Scott, for Ellis. I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on got to watch the tape.